Howdy, folks, and welcome to the Hunting Stories Podcast. I'm your host, Michael, and we got a great one for you today. Today, we're actually connecting with Ike Eastman of Eastman's Hunting Journals. That's right. We have a little bit of hunting royalty uh, talking to us today, and uh, he tells us a crazy story, uh, a couple stories, actually, but he starts us off by going to Mongolia on a, uh, a bucket list hunt of his, and it is an amazing story. Uh, by the end of it, I'm not sure if he talked me into it or talked me out of going. Um, either way, Ike, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was a ton of fun to talk to you. Um, to you listeners, thank you guys for tuning in. Make sure you go and uh, check out Eastman's Hunting Journals. And beyond that, make sure you go and uh, rate our podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you're listening and uh, share it with a friend or two. Uh, now I'm going to get off my little soapbox here. I'm going to let you guys just go ahead and get this thing started. Ike, thank you again. Now let's let Ike tell you his stories. All right, Ike. Welcome to the Hunting Stories Podcast. How are you? Good. I appreciate it. Thanks for letting me on uh, to tell some lies. Well, I shouldn't say lies. <laughs> Let's say spins on on the truth, right? The, the every good tale, story, right? yeah. Every good story <laughs> needs embellishment to make it just a little bit more entertaining. Absolutely. That reminds me. I think I saw it on Instagram, but it was basically like uh, Teddy Roosevelt. And it was like, here's his favorite hunting story. And he's like riding a Tyrannosaurus Rex or something like that. So <laughs> that's part of the fun in hunting stories. No one's going to ever really know if it's the full truth and it doesn't really matter. So, no, um, no. but you know, I, I have a feeling a lot of people already know who you are if they're tuning in, but let's go ahead and, and kick this thing yeah. off right and let you introduce yourself. Yeah, so I'm Ike Eastman, uh, owner of Eastman's Publishing, which is a multimedia company uh, focused on Western big game hunting, and I'm third generation in the industry. My dad started the current the company, but my grandfather started filming uh, wildlife in Alaska in 1957 wow. um, until he passed curve. away. Yeah, <laughs> until he passed away in 96. Um, so yeah, I've, I've been really blessed to be in go some really cool places. Um, our family is kind of known for being adventurous. My grandfather, like, I mean, he way ahead of the curve filming stuff in, in 57, you know, in Alaska and in all up North country and did crazy things. Like he got stuck on the ice pack for three days, uh, crashed an airplane and, and survived out on the ice in the middle of winter for three days before the air force found him and just crazy stuff. So yeah. We're really adventurous. Um, That's awesome. You know, like I don't want to interrupt you, but my father-in-law did something super similar up in the, the the up in Canada. I'm not sure specifically where. He was on a helicopter, and they crashed on an island in the middle of a frozen river, basically. Oh man! And uh, they had to get rescued too. Basically, spent like I think it was two days. So not quite as many days, but it's Oof. it's crazy to hear someone that has a very similar, just quick story like that. So yeah, go, go ahead. That's crazy. So I, you know, I was I was in. I was introduced to be an adventurous very young in life. And one of the books uh, that my grandfather, always, my, he was a huge reader. And one of, you know, many memories I have of him is sitting by a, a fire and, and they lived in this really neat house. Uh, he's sitting by a fire and he would read and, and he was a night owl. So he'd read till, you know, three or four o'clock in the morning. Yeah. And, and it was probably about the time I was in kindergarten or something like that. And I was just learning how to read. I remember sitting on his lap and he started reading this book to me. Um, it, and it was written about Mongolia and it's called uh, East of the Moon, uh, West of the Sun. And it's all about these guys, six, these six guys that take us adventure to Mongolia. And they spend pretty much six months over there uh, trying to hunt the largest sheep in the world. And that's the Argali. Oh, cool. And I just fell in love 
with the country and the landscape. And so I started, you know, doing a ton of research on not only hunting in Mongolia, but just the Mongolian culture and how, you know, Genghis Khan was, you know, he got closer than anybody to conquering the entire world and how they did it with, they did a uh, side note, one, how they survived, if you can imagine this, is they would cut goat meat up into strips, like long strips, and they would put it in between their saddle blankets of their horses. And so it would dry cure it with the salt from the horse. It would dry cure this meat. And that's how, yeah, that's how they, they were able to move huge forces of uh, troops for really, really long ways and not run out of food is because they were 100% uh, keto diet, you know, goat meat that was being cured in between their saddle blankets as they, as they travel. It's Um, super, uh, Innovative. It's, it sounds disgusting, but you know you got to do what you got to do. Right? Yeah, and I, if that's have what you ever like, to. tried anything like that, or, or uh, is that still on your bucket list? So I've had goat meat. Uh, when you we're near Mongolia, that's pretty much their protein. One of their main proteins is goat meat because they have goats everywhere. Yeah, um, and you know obviously the the uh, the goat wool, which is huge, uh, it's a huge industry, um, is is a big deal over there. So they have a ton of goats. But I, I've never cured, tried to cure it between saddle blankets. I, I don't know how long that would take, <laughs> but it's got to be weeks, right? <laughs> I, have, I have no idea. Oh, that's so, good. so I fell in love with Mongolia. And uh, later in life, I got the opportunity. Um, I can, Actually, I convinced my dad and my brother. Um, I said, let's go to Mongolia. The, it's never been cheaper. This was in 2012. Um, it's never been cheaper. And it's, it's not going to be, you know, it's always it's just going to get more and more expensive. Mongolia was starting to become really, really popular. Uh, I had my, my wife had our second baby on, on the way. I was like, you know, I, I, I know how much the first one crashed our lives. This one's really going to crash our lives. So I got I to gotta do some of these bucket list things all at once. That's a I good did. foresight, man. I've, I tell people all the time, like one plus one does not equal two when it comes to kids. It's something more no. than two. I don't know what it is exactly, but I, I, I didn't have that foresight. And I just, we, we now we're on to my wife's looking for three and I'm like, well, hold on. I got some things I want to do. So <laughs> that's, that's a, yeah. One year in that year, I went to Mongolia, Brazil and Germany all in 12 months, just doing bucket list things like went to Brazil and caught peacock bass on the Amazon, went on a, a driven hunt in Germany and then went to Mongolia. I kind of wow. used up all of my chips in one year and then I didn't travel for four or five. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, so we, so we decided to do this and I, and I have, you know, a a ton of contacts in the, in the hunting industry that do Asian stuff. Uh, In fact, the guy that is the voice of our TV show, his name's um, Clark Jeffs. And so when you, when you watch the beginning of our TV show and there's a a voiceover guy, he's that guy, he lives here in our town. But what he really does for a living is he sells, you know, Asian, African, Russian, he sells, you know, epic adventure hunts. And so I got a hold of Clark and I said, hey, I want to do this. And when I think we met up at uh, it was a sheep show or SCI or one of them and just nailed it down. And, and I said, we're going to do this because it's not going to be any easier ever. You know, Asia is still pretty friendly to the U.S. back then. Um, so. We, we made this plan and I decided early, I said, let's just not go to Mongolia and just, you know, take 10 days and go hunting and then come home. I said, if we're going to go, if we're going to go that far, let's do some adventure stuff. Let's do some things that 
that we may never get to do again. And so I convinced him to let, let us go to China, Beijing for three days. And so I have, I'm standing right here in front of you. I have taken guns into Beijing, China and left them for three days in the head of security for the airport's office locked up in his closet. He didn't even know what to do with them. <laughs> it's like no one's ever tried this before. I don't know. What to, you, I don't know what you know, it was one of those things where where the interpreter, our interpreter, uh, he's like, "No, it's legal." And he shows him where it's legal. You just can't take him out of the airport. Blah 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 blah. And the guy goes, "I don't know what to do with them. I guess we'll throw them in my closet." Well, he, just, he just threw them in the closet and locked them up and said, "I hope you come back and get them because I don't want those things in my closet for very long." Yeah. <laughs> so we did it. So we went to Beijing and, and, and it was, you know, really, really neat. That was back when it was way before the Olympics and you, the smog was, you could taste it. It was yeah. so thick. It was just in the, in the amount of people and, you know, there's, there's a six lane highway and, and 90% of the vehicles on the highway are bicycles. I mean, it's just absolute insanity. <laughs> you know, you just look at the power grid and, 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 all kinds of crazy stuff, but we got to go to Tiananmen Square and we went to Mao's tomb and we went to, um, we did get to go to the great wall and actually walk up the great wall. I have some rocks that I confiscated from there and put them in my pocket. Just so <laughs> I could say I have some rocks from the great wall. Um, and it was really, really neat. Now, you know, I, the looking back on it, I was like, what were we thinking? Cause we started off a trip in a country that doesn't have any food that I would you know, be able to recognize like th their big thing is they take a duck, a whole duck alive feathers on it and dump him into boiling peanut, bo peanut oil and pull him out and start breaking chunks off and eat him beacon all the whole nine yards. Jesus. Unbelievable. And, and they're still kind of, in my opinion, in, in, in our, in our opinions, I would say they're sadistic because when they do this, there's a big, you watch it through a window, you pick your duck and then they dump it in there and you watch them cook it. This poor ducks literally boiling to death. Um, That's crazy. It's like lobster, right? But yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's what my dad goes. Well, we do that to lobsters. I went, okay. That's fair. Um, so, but we started this trip off in three days of not eating much and, and, you know, trying to eat what we could in the airports on the, on the way over and on the way back uh, on the way to Mongolia. So then we leave Beijing and it's like an eight hour flight to Ulaanbaatar uh, Mongolia, which is the capital city of Mongolia. And it's, it was right at the cusp when they had just had a huge drought of three years previously. And, um, and then a really bad winter, that winter was really, really bad. And so all the, the people, they're nomads typically, well, they had all moved to the city, but they were living in yurts outside, they call them gurs outside of the, the city limits. So it's just miles and miles as you land on this, this strip, there's just miles and miles and miles of these gurs everywhere. And you can't imagine my dad said it perfectly. He goes, where are they putting all the shit? I mean, it's just <laughs> amazing. A great question. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just, it's going somewhere. Yeah. So it's probably just right there. It's probably yeah. not going, probably not going no. anywhere. Right. No, no, it's it's not. You, it, after you get off out of the airport and you drive around a little bit, you realize that it's just there. And yeah. you, you, and those people probably pray for a really good monsoon type weather storm that pushes everything downriver from them. But really pretty. The people are extremely neat. Um, they're really really neat people. They're they're exactly what you'd think. Huge upper bodies and little tiny legs. I mean, they're it's amazing. They're all no, nobody's over five five. 
and but their their you know their chest or their shoulders are twice as wide as mine. They're crazy oh, big people. Yeah, they're like like cartoons. That's how like cartoon yes. dads are drawn, right? With just these yeah. legs and these barrel chests. Yeah. It's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> they all look like conk off of the, off of the, yeah. Well, anyway, so <laughs> they, uh, so we stayed the night there and here's, here's where the, the thing starts to get really dicey. My dad, of course you, you've been traveling for five days roughly and not sleeping well. And my dad wakes up in the middle of the night and thinks that it's five o'clock in the morning or thinks it's two o'clock in the afternoon, but it's really two o'clock in the morning. He jumps up in a panic runs into the bathroom in this, in the hotel, it was called the Chinggis Khan hotel, which was pretty sketchy in itself, but um, runs into the bathroom and um, takes a shower and does all this stuff. And he brushes his teeth and doesn't even think about it. Brushes his teeth with the water. Oh no. Comes out and goes, I shouldn't have done that. And I was like, Oh, this is going to be interesting to see what happens. So that morning we get back on the airplane and we fly to a, in a little, you know, the planes just get smaller and smaller. We flew on the largest airplane ever built, the A380, all the way down to a de Havilland, you know, uh, puddle jumper and fly into this town called uh, Hav. No, High Altai. It's the High Altai. It's right at the base of um, the Al, or the, uh, uh, my gosh, uh, where Everest is. <laughs> Yeah, it's the mountains that the that Everest is in, the mountain range. Anyway, so we're there, and and you know you're landing at, at twelve thousand feet, and the, the altitude is crazy. You're twelve thousand feet, but it's a flat prairie, and just crazy, crazy. So we get in the jeeps, and and the the interpreter we have in Mongolia speaks really good English, but he he owns the hunting concession, and so he kind of understands how to manipulate a story. Let's put it that way. <laughs> we get in this jeep at like noon. We go to this uh, this little shack that we can buy some stuff, and so we buy you know snacks and uh, uh, by this time we're buying our own water because we don't trust it because we've heard stories that what they do and to this day I still do this. What they do if you if you don't crunch your water bottle, people will go go around and pick them up and then they fill them with the tap water, put them back and sell them. And oh, so. Jesus. Yes. So you always crunch your water bottle because if you crunch your water bottle, you can tell that it's been crunched and it it isn't a real water bottle. But so we're by, you know, by a case of water and all this stuff. And it's me, my dad, my brother guy, and we have a camera guy with us and we jump in this Jeep and the interpreter and the two other guys, they jump in another Jeep and we just start going down this two track road. And we're going and going and crossing creeks and, and going across this huge flat to come to find out it's the Agobi Desert is what it was. But we're just for hours and hours. And we get about six hours into the trip. The sun's, you know, it's about evening time. And all of a sudden, our driver doesn't speak a lick of English. And we don't speak any Mongol. I don't speak any Russian, nothing. And so there's, you know, it's a pretty quiet ride. <laughs> Plus you're in a, you know, you're in a Russian Jeep that looks like it was built in 1955 and the windows don't roll down. I mean, it's just in it's, in it's, it's August. So it's 95 to hundred degrees. It's just blistering hot. About half, about six o'clock, all of a sudden the, the, you could tell the motor wasn't running right. And so he would turn it around. So the wind was hitting the engine, shut it off, open the hood. And then he'd sit there and have a smoke break. We're like, I mean, I don't care if he smokes when we drive. Of course, we didn't figure this out till about the fourth time this happens. It happens about every 45 minutes. 
the dang engine's overheating. It's too hot and the, and the wind's blowing from the back, so it's not getting enough ventilation in the engine. So we're constantly pulling over and he's having a smoke break and pulling over and having a smoke break. And then he'd pour water on the solenoid and pour water on the carburetor and try and cool the thing down. And we're sitting out there going, this is not good. We have no way of communicating. <laughs> Cell phones don't work. I mean, you're in the middle of nowhere, literally. Like this is not a good scenario by ourselves. The other Jeep's gone. You know, we, we, we hadn't seen them since we bought uh, Chinggis Khan vodka back there at the hut. And I'm like, well, I guess this is one way to end end all things, but we'll just keep going and see what happens. And about two hours later, all of a sudden we we're on a two track road all this time. Two hours later, we pop up on this, this berm and it's a paved highway, brand new paved highway, no stripes, <laughs> but it's brand new. I mean, like they just laid it a few hours ago. Like what the hell? And this Jeep, we're doing 60, 65 miles an hour on the two track. He gets on this paved road and that Jeep is not built for pavement. He can't go like more than 35 40 miles an hour tops, squirrely all over the place. Just crazy. Going along. So I'm like, okay, we've got to be getting close now. Nope. Two, uh, two more hours. Now you got to remember this is in August and it's pretty high on, uh, on the longitude. So it doesn't get dark until 10 o'clock, you know, 9 30, 10 o'clock. We're still clipping along eight o'clock and it sun's going down and we pull into a gas station. I was like, Oh my gosh, there's gas stations out here in the middle of nowhere. And it looks like a, you know, it's, I would say it's a 7-Eleven, but it, it looks like a, a pretty decent convenience store, like 15 pumps and people are gassing stuff up and, no and feeling two, two liter bottles of, you know, the empty two liter bottles of Coke with gas. And he's stuffing them in the back of the Jeep and stuff. I'm going, oh, my gosh, we're going we're we're not even close. He's he's filling stuff up like we're <laughs> going to run out of gas at some point. And then, and then the interpreter shows up Boop, just out of nowhere. Oh, here you are. And, and he goes, Oh, just a little bit longer, maybe, maybe another 30, 40 minutes and, and we'll be at camp. I'm like, okay, well, that, that'd be good. We've you know, been traveling for four days and three of us in the backseat of this Jeep. That's is not real comfortable. I'm not a small man. My brother's not a small guy and the camera guy's uh, short, but he's wide. So <laughs> we keep on trucking and uh, <laughs> two hours goes by. Three hours goes by. We roll in to this camp at midnight. Dark is dark. It's got, you know, four gers that one of them is ours and Gers an outhouse. Like a tent, I'm assuming. It's like a yurt. It's a yurt. So okay, Russians call them yurts. Uh, Mongolians call them gers. It's the got exact it. same thing. Okay. And uh, we roll in there and, you know, you just, you just somewhat unpack, throw your sleeping bag out. Um, they feed you. And at the, by this time, my dad's not feeling all that hot, but he, he, so he doesn't eat. I eat, it's, it's, uh, you know, pretty good meat and, and like a potato or something. I was like, this isn't bad knowing it's probably goat, but that's okay. And, uh, we went in and, and the interpreter comes in and says, okay, you guys all settled in. We're, we're going to get up at, uh, three 30. I look at my watch. It's one. I'm like, what's the point? This is, it's, you mean we're going to have a nap? <laughs> Because it gets light at 4.30 or 5. And so they want to be at a certain place um, before the heat waves happen that they can actually glass uh, and, and that the Ibex are, are up. So we do that. And the first day we roll around in the same Jeeps and they're driving off-road. And I'm talking up banks and up, up over mountains and stuff. I'm thinking to myself, we're going to roll this thing. We are absolutely going to roll this thing. 
Well, we get this, this, this time we get this driver, we called the Mad Hatter because he was always in a hurry. I mean, an absolute hurry. He was a, an Olympic wrestler, nonetheless. I mean, just a big dude. And the way you started his Jeep is you had to crank it. And so they would, they have come to find out they were having, they were having jokes that he got the crank one because he could crank it in one crank because he was so strong versus other guys that have to do it two or three times. But he was always in a hurry, hundred miles an hour everywhere. And so, you know, over rocks and it was just crazy. Well, the first day we see a couple Ibex, but nothing, um, nothing giant, but we know what we're looking at. We actually, uh, my brother who was with, an, he was in a, the camera guy and him were in another Jeep. They went a different area. They actually, he missed a wolf over there and they saw uh, elk. So Mongolia is really unique. They have, we went through on our way out our way back. We went through their wildlife museum. And they have everything North America does. They have a, a species that looks exactly like our elk. They have a species that is just like our black bears. They have they have an animal an antelope that looks just like our pronghorn. I mean, no you way. couldn't tell the difference. Yes, it's crazy. All the the big game species are mimicked there. So beyond so, beyond like their name, right? So I'm assuming they have different names there than they do. Yeah. Us. Like genetically, are they the same or are they just like no, they're, so close? They're really really close though. Really close. They are. Um, I read an article a long time ago about their elk that they are, um, they're genetically very close They're They could be considered a subspecies of our Rocky mountain elk or, or vice versa. Actually, I think it's vice versa. I think the Rocky mountain elk could, could be a subspecies of, of their elk. And I can't remember what they, they have a funny name for them. Like you hunt or that like kind that. of stuff too. Yeah. All that stuff's yep. fair game. Interesting. Yep. Huh. Yeah. In fact, yeah, they have, um, uh, that's one of the new things is to get all the different elk species across the world. I've heard of guys talking at Dallas Safari Club and Safari Club about trying to get every elk species from around the world. That's um, collectors. Yeah. Those ca that so anyway, California one's probably the hardest, even more so than, uh, the Rosie. Oh, no, the, uh, the Thule. Or the right? Thule. Yeah. 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 yeah it, it, you gotta have some good money to go play in that world. Yeah. I don't, I didn't think that like, unless you were, a, uh, a, what is it? A, a citizen, but uh, uh, if you live resident. in California, resident, resident of, of California, you couldn't get that tag. I'm sure you probably could buy it. You're right, but yeah, there's a there's a big ranch outside of LA that has a bunch of them, and and you can hunt on that place and, and shoot one. But they're they're ridiculously expensive. I'm sure. Okay, well, I I, I, so, I took us off track. Continue. No, that's right. So so then so we wake up, and that day my dad starts to get sick, and when I say sick, it's uh, it's, it's running out both ends and, and sometimes in the middle and just, you know, not good. Yeah. So, uh, I convinced the, the interpreter that we're going to go back and dad, dad needs to rest and he's pretty sick. And on the way back, the interpreter says, so I'm a, I'm a Buddhist, so we don't drink. He said, however, when I'm out here, I take a shot of vodka in the morning and a shot of vodka at night and it helps kill whatever bacteria is in my stomach that shouldn't be there. Uh, and I don't get sick before I did that. I would get sick every time I came out here. So me, I'm like <laughs> looking at my dad and I'm thinking, I ain't going down that road. So morning and night, <laughs> morning and night, shot a shot. I obviously didn't get hammered, but shot a shot. And I was the only one out of the four of us that didn't get sick. And I was the only one that did that. Everyone else no way. got so sick. Uh, you know, I, at, at the end, I was filming myself on this hunt and I took a, uh, I have an amazing Ibex. He's 45 inches long, just, 
just an absolute giant of an Ibex. And I shot him at like 170 yards. The interpreter filmed it because um, everyone else was just deathly ill, sick, sick, sick. <laughs> um, yeah, so note to self, a little, if, you, if you're going to learn something from the story, and, I, and actually I do this when I travel to like Mexico, might take my wife to Mexico on vacation. We'll take a shot of vodka in the morning, a shot of vodka, or not vodka. We do tequila down there, but same thing. Yeah. And and it keeps you from getting whatever bug is floating around down there. You know, if it's in the water or if it's, you know, traveling down there or whatever. That's um, crazy and, Russian, Russian medicine there. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. And, you know, every time you feel a little green, you just take a shot and it goes away. So, but I shot this beautiful, this uh, beautiful building. Now, let me tell you about that. It was like the... We we're on a seven day hunt. It was like day five. And it's just, it's an ass kicker of a hunt. Cause you're waking up at three, you're going to bed at midnight. I mean, you're just, just, you know, you're not getting much sleep and it's brutally hot in the middle of the day and you don't do anything in the middle of the day. When you're out there, it's, you know, it's three or four hours of doing nothing, just laying around trying to find shade and you just chase the shade around the, around the Jeep and, and uh, don't do anything. So you sleep sometimes and, but it's so hot anyway. Is it, let so, me ask you, because you mentioned it's like this giant plane, right? At 12,000 so, feet. Is it still that kind of terrain or is no, it because I'm sorry. Close... So when, from the gas station, when we left the gas station, we start climbing and we go all the way up to this, this top of this pass. And we were at 14.5 where we were hunting goats. And, you know, we're living in this valley and you go up the peaks to 14,500 feet. And it, and so you're constantly going up and down, up and down. Now they drive those Jeeps everywhere they can. And so you're not walking a ton, um, but it's the elevation and it's steep. It looks like um, if you've ever seen the mountains outside of Scottsdale, Arizona, they're just rock, giant, giant rock with not much grass on it. No trees. It's just rock. And those Ibex will lay down on those rocks and completely disappear. Yeah. You won't be able to see them at all especially in the middle of the day with the heat waves. So the, the day that I shoot mine, we find them first thing in the morning, we find them and they're like, you know, probably six or seven miles off and we put them to bed. So they lay down in the middle of the day. So we start walking and why I did this, I don't know. This is the other thing that people have to remember when they go, well, let's just, let's just go down over this and we'll see if we can, um, sneak up over the over the backside and we'll see if we can get a shot of them in their bed. Always think this is going to be an all-day event. Take water, take a coat, take take your backpack. I don't care if it is a <laughs> 95 degrees. Empty everything but water and a coat. I didn't I've, do that. This advice has come up multiple times on this podcast. Yeah. Where guys like, <laughs> I don't know why I did this, <laughs> but bring water even when you don't think you need it. Bring water and a little bit of shelter. So we start walking. And of course, we get to where we thought we could just look over this ridge and they'd be down there. They're not there. So the guide, he's walking around in a pair of like dress shoes, no laces in them, um, has this little knapsack thing that he always has over his shoulder and smoking cigarettes. And I'm talking lighting one cigarette with the Nick or lighting the next cigarette with the current cigarette, just constant chain smoking. No filters, nothing. And he's walking, you know, through this rocky boulder field in, in, in dress shoes, for God's sake, leather soled dress shoes. So 
we're walking and, and he says, you know, I think we, if we go all the way around the end of this mountain and back up over the top, and then we come at them, if we shoot and miss your dad, who's down at the Jeep will possibly have an opportunity at the band as they go by. Uh, okay. That sounds great. We're on day five and this is the best opportunity we've had. So I'll take it. So we walk all the way to the top and we get to the top uh, and we can see where they laid down. We saw a smaller one laying above them. And so we sit there all day at the top of this. And um, of course I had drank the bottle of water. I had most of it by now thinking I'm going to save the last quarter of this in case this turns into a three day event. And <laughs> so we're just sitting there waiting for the sun to, to, you know, the shadows to start getting long and they get up and they start moving off in the middle of the day. Well, what they were doing, I didn't know this at the time. And I don't think they did either, but looking back at the footage, what they were doing is they were chasing the shade too. So in the middle of the day, they'd get up and move to the other, you know, to another shade spot, lay back down. So we put a play on them as they're moving and we're, you know, they're worried that they're going to, they're moving off. And so we go over these three ridges down the side, up on the other one and get within 170 yards. I quickly show the, the interpreter how to record the kill scene. And I shoot this, this uh, Billy and it just, you know, he shoot him. He stands up, I shoot him and he jumps three lunges and is dead. Just unbelievable footage in fact you can watch it on our uh, eastman's hunting journals youtube channel it's on there say, that hunt is ask. yeah i'll have to find that Maybe yeah. i'll put a link to that in the show notes so if anybody wants to cool. see uh, yeah see that video it'll be right there so you know then of course then uh we're high-fiving and stuff and and my dad who's not sick by now he's 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 starting to recover my brother was sick at that point but he's starting to recover and so he and, and the driver get in the car and they drive to the bottom below us. And, uh, he, he walks, he walks up there and takes photos of it. It's really, it was really, just really, really fun. One of those trips that I'm glad I did it. I'm not sure I'd do it again, but I'm glad I did it once. It was yeah. unbelievable because just the, just the logistics to get there and get back. Um, my brother did end up taking one the last day of the hunt. Um, and, it was just crazy because on the way back, it was another thing where we get off the hunt at 10 and the interpreter comes in and says, Hey, uh, plans have changed. We have to go to this other town called, uh, uh, Hoved, And we're going to, you guys are going to fly out of Hoved. But in order to do that, we have to leave at midnight. It was like, like in a couple hours, he goes, yeah, we have to leave at midnight. So pack all your stuff up and we're going to leave. And then you fly out sometime tomorrow, I'm like sometime tomorrow. Well, we're not sure when the airplane's going to get there. We'll, we'll know more when we get there. Okay. <laughs> that sounds awesome. So we get back in the Jeeps, throw all our crap in the Jeeps, get back in the Jeeps and we drive and we get up on top and it was a starry night, you know, full moon, saw wild horses up there. And the guy pulls over. I think he was getting tired. So he pulls over and gets out and is having a smoke break. So we all pile out of there. Um, and it's snowing. We're so high in August, it's snowing. It's like 16,000 feet or something like that. No it's snowing. It was, and when I say cold, is this brutal desert cold. It was crazy. Absolutely insane. But then we get to, we get to Hav and, uh, and, the uh, on the way there, halfway down the mountain, we get we get talked to like ten o'clock in the morning. About seven in the morning, the um, 
the exhaust on the Jeep falls off. And so we're sucking in the carbon into the, into the cab and it's cold out. So nobody wants to roll the windows down. We have to roll the windows down so we don't fall asleep. I'm pretty sure the camera guy got asphyxiated because he passed out twice on me. It was just this crazy thing, right? So we get into Hav and um, we get to the airport and they're like, yeah, we don't know when the airplane's coming. Okay, like today. Well, we're hoping, we're hoping by five it'll be here. So you guys just hang out. Okay. And then, so, we, so it gets close enough and she's like, okay, we'll, we'll take your luggage now. I'm like, what if I don't want to give you my luggage? What if we're here for three days? She goes, well, if we do, we'll just give it back to you. Okay. And so we have our, our head, our horns, and our capes are all salted and they're in big duffel bags. And she says, oh, you guys are overloaded on luggage. What you can take, it's going to cost you money. I'm like, okay, how much? You know, I don't, at this point, I, I don't that care. <laughs> yeah, like I don't care how much. And she says, and I can't remember the amount in, in Mongolian. Um, I think they're rubles, actually. And it was like 300. The interpreter's like, oh, it's like $300. I'm like, okay, that's fine. And I go give her a card. She's like, oh, no, we don't take credit cards. It all has to be cash. Where am I going to find $300 in cash in your cash? Not mine. I have $100 bills, but I need their cash. The interpreter's like, oh, let's go down to the bank, thinking, oh, this would be a, this is going to be a mess. This is not going to be good. <laughs> so I leave my dad and my brother at the airport. I said, if I don't come back, tell my wife and my unborn child I love them. This is, you know, this just sounds, this sounds like I'm going to go get, you know, rolled. All the money in my life is going to be pulled out of, out of a bank in Mongolia, and I'm going to get rolled, and this is going to be it. He's like, no, no, it'll be safe. So I, we go down to this bank or I go down to this bank with the, with the interpreter and the driver. And I walk up to the bank, but the bank's closed. It's like Sunday or something. He goes, oh, you'll have to get it out of the ATM machine. Oh, this is going to be interesting. So I put my card in there. Thankfully, I know the pen. Thankfully, it doesn't reject it. And it starts spitting out money. And when I say spitting out money, I had, thankfully, I had my backpack with me because it was coming out of there and I was stuffing money in every pocket in my backpack. <laughs> I had enough money to fill a paper bag. I'm not kidding you. That's how much this, this money was. Of course, you know, I'm getting like $300 in $1 bills is what it equates yeah. to. And so I'm walking around with this backpack full of money thinking, I'm going to get rolled. This is, there is no way that this is going to work. I'm going to get rolled. We get back in the Jeep and we're driving. And, and as we, when we went to the bank, oh, it seemed like all the people were going, we're all, all walking to the same spot. And we go past this place and I, and I look and it's just this huge concrete walls for a hundred yards on each side. And the entire city is showering together. I mean, there's, there's 4,000 people <laughs> in this thing just lathered up, washing and having water fights the whole yard, nine yards. I asked, I asked uh, Adia, I said, what are the, I mean, is this normally goes, oh yeah, they only turn the water on every fourth day. So everybody shows up and they shower all at once. That's the only time the water's turned on. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I wasn't going to get rolled. I was going to get, I was going to get showered. You're going to get lathered. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we went back to the airport, the plane showed up and we flew out and uh, ended up, we flew back into uh, Ulaanbaatar and I've never been so happy to see a crappy hotel than, than I was to see the Chinggis Khan Hotel in Ulaanbaatar. It's a completely different place now. They have they have skyscrapers and and it's you know one of it's a huge city and lots of infrastructure now. And but I got to see it before it was much. You know they, they didn't have paved roads. The only 
the only pavement was in front of the hotel and it was at the gate to the, you know, up, up through the under, uh, underpass thing. And then back to the gate it was the only pavement in the whole place, the whole city. Huh. Crazy. That's, that's insane. You mentioned, uh, that you're glad you did it, but you don't think you ever do it again. I'm not sure if you talked me into it or out of it. I, <laughs> I really don't know. It, it, was, uh, it was definitely an adventure, an unbelievable yeah, that's adventure. It's uh, I think a lot of these things, right? In the in the moment, this is why we love hunting stories, right? Hunting stories, they kind of suck as you're going through. <laughs> Almost all of them do, right? But yeah, at the end, yeah. they're just the most fun things to relive. And and man, my I, my face is hurting from all of just like the things that kept adding up for you. I was just couldn't stop smiling, man. That's a good story. It's one of those things that I I, I say this about hunting almost always people, you know, you're in the, in the trenches, you're like, what are we doing? This is dumb. This is the dumbest thing. I've really got us. We, we have a saying in our family, a fine, you know, a fine uh, mess you got us into here, Ike. This is a great, great disaster. And then about, you know, you get, I got home and telling the story and I wanted to go back. I was like, I, I'll go back tomorrow. Yeah. What, what, what? It's like childbirth. You look at a woman, if I went through birthing a child, I would, there would be one person on the planet ever. I would never have another one. And my wife has one and it wasn't six months later. She's like, well, you know, if we have them closed, I'm sorry, dude, were you in the same room I was in? Cause that (laughs) does not look like fun. Right. Yeah. My, my wife almost bled out for one of ours. Like I had the baby for an hour and a half and then they're like, they told me she'd be there in 10 minutes hour and a half oh, goes yeah. by i'm holding the baby i'm like what's going on she yeah. gets in there everything ends up being totally fine and three months later she's like let's have another one i'm like what the mm. hell's going on that's the scariest yeah, thing is... i've ever lived through and it wasn't even me yeah exactly <laughs> it's, it's it's absolute horror was what happens in a birthing room it's just unbelievable and they and yeah. they and there's people that have done that we have friends that they have done that 12 times I'm like they're, they're no wow. no no i'm not doing this 12 times not <laughs> no, no way but no. uh i don't know i don't know how many women are listening or if i have an all-male audience i don't know if we can compare childbirth <laughs> to hunting stories but no no the point was <laughs> the po- you're absolutely right no 100 percent, you cannot it doesn't take nine months to do and it is it, it is the longest 36 hours of your life but the point was we do a very similar thing we go on these adventures that that we embrace the suck and just and then think to yourselves, why would we do this? Why do we do this? We call this fun? Are we having fun? This doesn't seem like it's fun to me. And then hours later, days later, like, man, I can't wait to get back and do it again. Spend the next 10, 11 months waiting to another shot to, for the suck to embrace, right? So, Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. Fun, Dream That's about fun. it, which is even worse. <laughs> right? God, I, like I told you, I'm a new hunter and I've never really uh, devoted myself year round to anything. And all of a sudden hunting, I'm like, yep. It's the hardest thing I've ever done. Let's keep going. Yeah. Let's just keep yeah. diving into it and keep not being successful and being freezing cold and whatever. Let's just keep going. Well, and you learn so much about yourself and you Absolutely. learn so much about the people that you're going that you're there with and you grow and you have opportunities to grow. You have opportunities to to uh you know better your gear and better your person and and better your group and it's you know it, there is really nothing like that that can put you to the, that type of test that you can do every year. Um, you know, even in the military, it's, it's a lot different than, than the hunting. Um, it's a lot different and honey's just unique. Absolutely. 
A big part of it's the the mental. Like, there's no one stopping you from just walking away from it, but you just gotta yep. keep pushing. Uh, there's not yep. many things where there's not somebody pushing you along, but hunting, it's it's all in your head. So, yep, 100%. but uh, yeah, we're getting a little off track here. We're not here to talk about all that stuff. We just want to hear hunting stories. <laughs> we just want to hear something's hunting stories. Okay. Yeah, um, so I know you said you got another couple for us. Yep. I'll let you. Let me tell you. Um, yeah, I'm gonna tell you. So here at Eastwinds, we've been doing something for 30 years where out of our entire database of subscribers and audience, we pull um, a hunt winner. We've, we've been doing one for 30 years, uh, two for 20 years. And then the about, so we did a hunting journal or out of our hunting journal subscribers, we've been doing that for 30 years. And that was a deer hunt. Um, and it's a, you know, it's a, an epic adventure of its own. And then the bow hunting journal subscribers, we pull an elk hunt. And then now that we have tag hub, which is our online research tool, um, we pull, five or four hunts out of there out of that audience and uh it's two antelope hunts an elk and a deer so kind of a wide range i tell you that to set this so i get to every year i get to go hunt hunts with people that have varying skills everything from i've never seen an elk to i've killed a 360 bull are we going to have the opportunity to shoot at a 360 bull that type of, I mean, everything yeah. in between. And it is, which is always fun for me because you get, you get, these guys are always really humble out of, out of, I don't know, probably, probably close to 60 hunt hunts. I've never had a guy that was a complete jerk. Never once. We've had a couple guys that are annoying, but never a jerk. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's a fine and, line. And, it's a fine line. Yeah. Those two yeah, Exactly. And so I've had the opportunity to hunt with varying skill sets and hunt a place that I know really well. Because the other thing that, that we have to do in order to do this, we have to stack the, the deck kind of. Because you never know, am I going to draw out of that, you know, 100,000 people, am I going to draw a guy that is 72 years old and can't walk, you know, gets winded walking to the refrigerator? Or am I going to draw the Billy Badass 30 year old that's been hunting in the backcountry the last 10 years and, you know, is, is couldn't, yeah. you know, physically do it. Maybe some skill sets need sharpen, but can physically do it. So you never know. So I stacked the deck. They're always outfitted hunts um, for various reasons. Number one, tags. Number two, liability and legality. And number three, it's always easier to share the load, right? Yeah. Share the workload with an outfitter or guide. So <laughs> I had, a, I had a, I have a guy. So we draw this random dude out of the, the draw and I get a hold of him. And then that's one of the funnest things I get to do. In fact, I get to do it in a couple of weeks is I get to call these guys, just randomly call them. It's like a, like winning the radio contest, you know, yeah. randomly call them. And I, and we Facebook and Instagram live it so that, that, cause you never know what they're going to say. <laughs> so I, you know, you most quick, of the time, is this something you guys advertise, or is this like completely unknown to these guys that because they are a member that they're entered in this competition? Oh, I, I would say we, we we try real hard to advertise the crap out of it, but okay. um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but um, most of the time, you know, it's just like winning the lottery. They, a lot of times, the guys don't realize that they're entered into it and would and think there's no way in hell I'll ever win this. There's no way I'll win this. Yeah. So most of the time they're dumbfounded when I call them. Actually, rarely do they answer the phone. Usually I have to leave a message and then they call me back because yeah. no one answers their phone anymore. You know, it's no, like if you need know. something, yeah. text me. Yep. Yeah. 
Yep. So we randomly call this guy and he answers the phone and he sounds like he's, you know, just lost his dog. I was like, dude, I'm giving you a hunt. And he says, is there any way I can call you back? Uh Um, yeah, sure. Call me back. And he answered his phone, which is weird. Calls me back 30 minutes later. He goes, man, I appreciate that. My wife was in labor. So, um, I was in the labor room. (laughs) You answered your phone. (laughs) He goes, well, she's pretty excited. I want to hunt. I'm like, um, do I need to let you go? You can call me tomorrow. It's not a big deal. Next week's fine too. He's like, no, no, no. She, they, they, they decided that she's going to do a C-section. So they're prepping her. And so I got a couple minutes here. Okay. (laughs) They named the baby after you. No, guess what? Guess what they did name him. His name was Reed Elam, mule deer backwards. No way. Yep, because the guy won a mule deer hunt. That's awesome. (laughs) I wonder if he had to talk his wife into that or not. (laughs) I don't know. Well, I met her actually at a show. I I don't think so. (laughs) I think she was pretty excited about it. That's a pretty good. That's a great name. I never. I never. Yeah. What you could have told me that a hundred times, I probably wouldn't have thought about putting it backwards and seeing mule deer there. So, yep, yep. Well, that's a great Reed story, Elo. though. I can't believe he answered while she was like in labor. <laughs> yeah, she was. They were. She was. They were trying to decide. I think what happened, you know, after hunting with him, I think what happened is they were trying to decide if she was going to continue in the labor room or if they were just going to go straight to a C-section. And I think he answered the phone thinking it was a medical professional or something. I, I, you know, I don't know if it was just an instinct or what his wife's doctor or whatever. Yeah. Right. Yep. Yeah. Like, Oh, 307. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So that was, that was, it was a fun hunt and he killed a really nice deer in Montana with uh sizzling ass outfitters up there. And, and it was a lot of fun, but it it was, uh, that was definitely one of the ones for the book. I, I hope I don't ever get that again. I've had, I've had some funny stories like guy, I did have one guy turn it down. Actually, um, he he was seventy eight years old and just had triple bypass surgery. And this is what he said: it, "It just this makes you go, oh my gosh, I'm glad there's people like this still in the world." He said, "Listen, I would love to go, and I'll probably be healthy enough to do that. But I've lived my life. Why don't you redraw a name or go to the alternate guy, and hopefully, it's a young man that will remember this hunt." for many, many years and get to share it with his family for many, many years versus me that I don't have very many years left. I went, holy cow, is that insightful? So it was pretty cool. The kid that um, took the hunt, his name is Danny. And he wrote, he wrote this guy a big long letter and, and say, gave him a bunch of stuff. Yeah. I don't think, I mean, I think they wrote back and forth. And, but it wasn't, you know, I don't think they ever met in person. Cause one of, one of Danny lived in, I think Danny lived in Nebraska and the guy that officially originally wanted lived in California, if I remember right. Okay. But that's yeah. cool though. It's cool that people are still doing stuff like that. You wouldn't think with today's times that like anybody would be that like, I don't know if noble is the right word, but it feels very noble of him. Humble. Cool. Yeah. Humble, noble, all that stuff. Just be like, you know what? Yeah. There's, there's people that will enjoy this and, and it'll mean a lot yep. more to them. That's cool. Yep. That's our, yeah. So, um, I, I could go on a hundreds of hunting stories with, with those guys, the guys that, that have really good shots and guys that come out here and don't, you know, they, they've never shot more than 200 yards and <laughs> it's always fun. It's always yeah. fun. But, That's um, 
Yeah. So, well, I appreciate it. I mean, I could go on for days and days and tell you sheep hunting stories in Northwest Territories or caribou stories in, in uh, Quebec back when we could do that or, you know, mountain goat hunt in British Columbia. Um, but I know time is of the essence for, for everyone. So it's up to you. No, uh, you know what? If, if you're willing to tell me a couple more, like I said, I got all day. So I'm not going to ever cut anybody off. I'll hear, I'll hear hunting stories all day long. So if you, if you want to tell one or two more, please feel yeah. free. But if, if you got to run, I totally understand that as well. Perfect. So I'll tell you, um, we did a cool thing in 2017. So I was telling you, my grandfather, uh, you know, hunted up north for, for decades and did, he got to do some really cool stuff. There was a, film that he produced called challenging the Northwest territories. And what it was is the Canadian government came to him. He was filming in Alaska and the Canadian government came to him and said, listen, we'd like you to go to Northwest territories and put together a documentary and see if it's worth hunting. If we can, if we can actually sell hunts to Americans, Canadians, Europeans, and, and it's worth it. So we don't want you to just go in there. We want you to film it. So him and two of his buddies, they spent 90 days in the Northwest territories before anybody, you know, before white men were really in there yeah. and they just hunted, they could shoot anything they wanted. They lived off the land and they spent, you know, this unbelievable summer That's in amazing. the Northwest territories. So there was no like tags. There was no, no. season dates. It was just go no. up there, hunt what yep. you can, tell us yep. how it goes. That's, yep. Tell us, tell us if it's worth it. And now you, an opportunity now, you, know, they, you will never hear about again. Yeah. No, no. You know, he, he went up there and they shot, I think between the three of them, they shot like seven doll sheep and a doll sheep now is 30, $35,000 hunt. I mean, they, yeah. they shot seven of them and they shot a bunch of caribou and, and just all kinds of stuff. Had grizzly bear encounters and anyway, crazy, crazy adventure. Check it out. It's a, it, there's a bunch of stuff in there, but the neat thing, how I get played into this, is in 2017, uh, Yeti approached us. Yeti Coolers approached us and said, "Hey, we want. We've seen your family history because we did this documentary with one of the last meeting survivors of my grandfather's friends. His name was Danny. Um, he's now passed away, but uh, he was an apple farmer in Washington. Danny Apples was, is, was his company. <laughs> he invented actually." invented the ability to have apples all year round. He figured out huh. how to put them in sheds and, and so that they would be fresh all year round. He's the reason why you can get a honey crisp in December. That's awesome. Yeah. But anyway, <laughs> yeah. So, but he was a real colorful guy and he, and he went with my grandfather on this adventure. So we interviewed him before he passed away. We interviewed him and let him tell the stories and all the fun stuff. And then we worked in some of the old footage from, from that, that trip into this, this deal. Well, the marketing director for Yeti saw that we call it the Eastman family history saw that. And he said, Hey, I want to do a film on you guys. And I want, I want to go back up to the Northwest territories and go on a hunt. He tells us this at sheep show. I'm like, you want to do it when? Well, this summer. Okay. Um, I don't think you understand. That is impossible. These guys book out three, four years to get a sheep hunt. Well, it just so happened because of connections and who I know and people that the family knows and they know us, we work a deal out with a with a gal uh, from Canal Outfitters, and she had just taken over this territory and was hunting it and had had a had a spot for us. So we went up there, and here's this crazy thing: in the challenging Northwest Territories, uh, my grandfather film. He, when he's up there, there's this this uh, outfitter. And he, his name is Cougar Long. 
and he's building a cabin right along the canal road, which the canal road is was the canal highway is how uh, lower 48 is connected to Alaska. This is one of the ways there's two, two main roads and this is one of them right along the road. He's building this cabin out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, out in the middle of nowhere in the, in the McKinsey mountains. And he's, his plan is to outfit this as long as grandfather as long as grandpa Gordon tells the government that it's worth it, but he's, you know, he got nothing else to do. So he's building this cabin. So my grandfather films it, helps him film Films, films him building it, helps him build this thing. And then on the film, he, they, he, my grandfather walks a sheep down and shoots the sheep within within sight of the cabin. They were watching my grandfather do this with, with a spot scope. Anyway, <laughs> so this is on this film. So we, and unbeknownst to my brother and I, we land, we go, go all the way up there. And it's a it's true northern adventure where you spend three days in Yellowknife because of weather, and you spend two more days in in uh, in uh, a little village that has an airport, you know, waiting for more weather. Anyway, we get in there, and we land at the Canal Lake, and I, I tell Guy as we land, I go, I'm pretty sure this is Canal Lake. I'm pretty sure this is where that was all filmed. And Guy's like, man, it that lake looks really, it looks like the same lake because in the film, there's a chunk where they land a beaver. Uh, or they land a, um, not a beaver, a, a super cub on floats. And when they land, there's a bull moose standing in the lake and the bull moose's heads underwater and they land and the bull moose picks his head up and there's an airplane sitting there. But he just like freaks out. Right. It's pretty cool footage. <laughs> well, so I know what the lake looks like. I'm like, man, this thing looks a lot alike. Well, we get land the plane to get all our gear over, get in the, the cabin and walk up and sure as shit. That cabin that guy is building is still in this outfitter's camp and they use it as the cook shed. I mean, it's no the cook way. shack. It's the kitchen. And it has a plaque on it that says Cougar Lawn 1967. And it's 50 years to within a couple of weeks, 50 years later, my brother and I are in that exact same camp hunting dull sheep. And my brother ends up shooting his sheep on the same exact mountain that my grandfather walked his down. That's amazing. That is so yeah. amazing. Uh, a question about your grandfather's movie. Can I find yeah. that on the Eastman's YouTube or where? where so can I find you, it? yeah, you can find um, you can find all of the you can find our version of this hunt. Not Yetis. Yetis is out there too, but we uh, we filmed it as well on our YouTube Eastman's Hunting Journal's YouTube channel. You can find our version of this hunt, which has all the old footage, and we actually built it like Grandpa narrated it, which was kind of neat. And then. Um, there's the Eastman family history, which has Danny Gibbers in there. And then you can watch uh, chunks of Northwest territories. We don't have the whole thing because the film over time degraded. So we have pieces of it. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that does. And that's all on the YouTube. Yep. Okay. Yep. hundred percent. Find some of that stuff and, and again, put it in the show links, but I'm super interested in seeing all that. That's, yeah. that's, that's a super cool that your brother managed to, to pull that off. And, and you said 50 years to like the day or to the week. Yeah. 50 years within a month for sure. Cause they only hunt up there in you know, August and we were there the first of August. So yeah. it's, yeah, it was, it was so serendipitous. And oddly enough, it wasn't planned by anybody. It's not like we said, well, we got to get to Canal uh, Lake or we got to get to, it was just, Hey, let's go to the Northwest territories. We'll make it work. In fact, we were hoping to go to another plane called another place called Plains of Abraham, which Grandpa spent a ton of time on. It's this huge plateau on the top of the McKinsey Mountains, and it's as flat as a table. 
and they call it the Plains of Abraham. And we were hoping to get there, but uh, we never had to go there because of success at Canal Lake. <laughs> and walking up there, and the the shack is there, the log cabin is still built and using it, and it's amazing, unbelievable. So that's cool. There's a that's not much of a hunting story. It's kind of a history story, but it, it was it was neat to be involved. Yeah, no, that's great, and it uh, it gave me a little bit of chills that you guys just like randomly happened. So. I like those kind of stories too. Like I say uh, all the time, there's no such thing as a bad hunting story. There's some, <laughs> that's some right. bad results, but the stories themselves, if they're worth telling, they're worth telling. So, yep, um, cool, right. Nick. Do you wanna you wanna share any others, or are you all set? I think we're we're pretty good for now. If if uh, if you want to kind of tell the people where they can find you. Yeah. So um, you can find me. I have Instagram, Facebook. It's Ike underscore Eastman on uh, Instagram. Eastman's Hunting Journals is our handle on YouTube, uh, the company handle on Facebook and Instagram. Um, I have my own podcast as well called Eastman's Hunting Podcast Edition, where I interview guys like you and we talk about your life and what normal dudes can learn from you because you've had trials and tribulations and things that are important in your life. Uh, in the red thread that connects us all is hunting, but we really talk about life and about yeah. success and, and stuff like that. So. Um, that's our podcast. We, taghub.eastmans.com is where you can go if you're if you're looking for uh, data on how to draw out west or how to hunt out west. We have some mule deer courses on there. That's a to you know a to z on how to hunt mule deer. So all kinds of cool stuff there. That's awesome, man. Well, thank you, Ike. I really appreciate it. I'm gonna put links to all that stuff you just mentioned again in the show notes. We're gonna have a lot down there th this episode, but uh, I think it's gonna be worth checking out. Um, yeah. Yeah. Thank you, man. I appreciate you yeah, taking thank the time. You. It was great to meet you. And um, yeah, yeah. Don't be afraid to ever reach out if you ever need anything. I'm, I will. I'm here to help you. I will. Thank you, Michael. You enjoy uh, enjoy Colorado. You're not down there in Texas in the Texas heat. Ooh, man, with the day we left, 108, it felt like oh. 128. So oh. I was like, let's get out of here. Let's get out of here. No kidding. So, we don't need to be here. Let's go to Colorado. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. All right, guys. That's it another couple stories in the books i want to thank ike again for coming on the podcast it was a pleasure meeting him and he had some amazing stories like i said really not sure if i it was sold or uh, convinced otherwise of my goal yet um, so thanks again sir i do appreciate you um, make sure you guys check out what eastman has going on i've uh, attached some of the uh, links to the things that i spoke about in the show notes so some of the youtube videos um, just eastman hunting's journals podcast the website all that stuff you can find it in the show notes um, beyond that guys thank you for tuning in and uh, like i mentioned at the beginning please get out there and share the podcast with a friend and please review us on you know whatever you're listening to right now whether it's spotify um, apple Podcasts, google Podcasts, whatever it might be we appreciate that um, that's it guys uh, this was a fun one i hope you guys enjoyed it now get out there and, you know, make some stores of your own.